you need to have that critical and creative thinking. You need to have that the way to make connections. We're not going to lose that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Optimalist, a podcast where we've set out to explore the optimal way to educate in the age of AI. If you're new here, I am Sarah Candela, your host through this exploration of the elements of human flourishing. Eric Francis is an international author, educator, and presenter with over 25 years of experience working in education. He is the author of Deconstructing Depth of Knowledge, a method and model for deeper teaching and learning. He's also the author of Now That's a Good Question, How to Promote Cognitive Rigor Through Classroom Questioning, and his new book, Inquiring Minds Want to Learn, Posing Good Questions to Promote Student Inquiry, will be published by Solution Tree in May 2024. Eric is the owner of Maverick Education, providing professional development, guidance, and support to K-12 schools and staff that is standards-based, socially and emotionally supportive, and student-responsive. He's also been consistently ranked as one of the world's top 30 education professionals and one of the top 25 for designing thinking and future of work by Thinkers360. I hope you enjoy the conversation that Eric and I had on today's Optimalist. Things with AI right now, with what's going on with AI, you know, we need to accept the technology. We need to embrace the technology. And that's something that we in education, we've done, but we haven't gone all the way with it. In fact, we're very, very resistant with it. Um, I like to say that when it comes to chat GPT, that I hope we don't make the same mistake that we made with Google, which is there was this thing in instruction where we feel like Google's bad. Like, for example, I wrote a book on questioning and I ask, what's a good question? And I always get back one that can't be Googled. Well, why not? I mean, Googling is all about answering questions. In fact, we don't have to answer anymore because answer comes free through Google. What we need to do is we need to address the question. So if I ask you a question, that is not so much now to assess learning. It's to activate and advance learning. It's to get you wanting to go and go find out what the answer is instead of you trying to recall it from the top of your head. The other thing that's interesting, I talk about this in my next book that's coming out next year, it's called Inquiring Minds Want to Learn, Mm. is that one of the hard parts about questioning inquiry is coming up with the good question. It's not easy. You know, we want to ask questions, we want to engage in inquiry, but it's not easy. In fact, it's very, very complex and rigorous. So one of the things I talk about is you can enter this prompt into AI, into ChatGPT and say, What kind of good questions can students inquire, investigate through a deep inquiry into and pick whatever you're teaching? ChatGPT will come up with those questions. And they're actually really good questions. They're not basic yes or no or single response questions. They're actually deep questions that will get the kids to think deeper and even want to learn uh, more of extended uh, learning experiences. It sounds like that has a lot to do with trying to naturally... Yes, it's curiosity, but naturally inspire a sense of motivation, which I think is something that we're very interested in talking about more and more these days. Well, and that's the thing is that, you know, there's this push for questioning and inquiry, but 
it's really like, what is a question and why do we use questions? And if you look at the research of it, kids between the age of two and five, research has shown they'll ask 300, 500 questions a day. And it's all to their mother because that's the familiar adult. And the question that those kids usually ask is why they want explanations. They want justifications. When kids go to school, we still have that that, that dynamic where the adult and child is engaging through questioning, communicating through questioning. But the problem is now is that the adult is the one who's asking the questions and they're not asking the questions to activate advanced learning. They're asking it to assess learning. Right. So the emphasis becomes more on the answer. And that's why kids get very, very uh, anxious about questioning because if they're asked a question, they're expected to give an answer. And when a teacher says, does anyone have any questions? Like when I was a kid and a teacher asked me that, to me, that was show and tell time because I always ask questions. And I would, you know, I basically that opened the doorway for me to ask anything. So I can be in, you know, history class and say, why do I get a chill down my spine whenever, uh, you know, Sarah walks past me? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you ask, does anyone have any questions? Yeah, I got that yeah. question. Mm-hmm. So we lose that as kids get older and kids go through school. And it's it's really interesting because a lot of it's because number one, learning and questioning becomes about assessment, not activating or advancing learning. And number two, you know, the kids, uh, their brain activity starts to slow down because if you look at a kid between age two and five, their brains look like, if I put an MRI in front of it, it looked like the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. And that's how they communicate. They question and question and question. Well, that slows down, but it's also the teacher now has 30 of other people's children asking why, why, why all the time. So that's why the teacher controls it. And I even say that we kill questioning curiosity as we go through school because we don't have time for that. We got to get to and through, you know, the curriculum and, and what we use as questions are not actually questions. They're actually items. They're activities you have to complete. So like when people say test questions, I kind of chuckle because I say, yeah, that's an interrogative statement. I get that, but it's not really a question. It's actually an activity. It's something you have to do. You have to answer that question. But when I use actual questioning, that's for me to have you activate and advance your learning. So if you can reach back a little bit into your own career history, career path, and I guess we'll go backwards, like think about what you're you're about to release another book, a new book. Um, you're talking about this potential podcast, the things that are in your immediate now that you find to be the most meaningful. What has led you to that path? What has inspired the work that you um, that is the center of your career now? You know, a lot of that is, I would say three things. I would say first is I'm very influenced by my father. Um, My father passed away in 2012, but my father was an unsung leader in the um, civil rights movement for the disabled. Um, He was a double amputee, lost his legs in 1965 in a car accident, not in Vietnam, in a car accident. And he really redefined the way people look at the disabled. You're from the East Coast. I mean, the Rams of Brooklyn College are there because my dad fought for that. He had a group. He actually, oh, wow. the acronym was called So Fed Up. In fact, there's a documentary on Netflix called Crip Camp. It came out during the pandemic. It was about um, these kids who were born disabled um, 
in living in New York and they went to this summer camp up in the Catskills. And when they came back as adults, they led the disability movement. They were born disabled. My dad became disabled, um, but he's in it. And, you know, he really revolutionized the way we look at people who are disabled. So that's one thing that really inspires me. Like, how can I revolutionize education, really get us to think about it? What can we do to change the system? And that's one thing you know, my dad and how he did that and changed the way we looked at the disabled. That's one thing that drives me. Drives me. Another thing I think is setbacks I've had in my career. I was not a successful administrator. I'll admit that. I, mm-hmm. you know, I had a career path. I teacher, school administrator, district office person, superintendent, go teach college somewhere, teach university, teach leadership courses. And I got derailed because, you know, it just, uh, you know, it wasn't the pathway I wanted. I wasn't successful. I didn't have the coaching and mentoring I think new administrators need. Um, You're kind of like thrown to the wolves. You're like, okay, here's this and uh, don't even ask for forgiveness and don't even try to ask for permission. You really need a mentor. And I didn't have that. So I went a whole different route. Uh, We're going from school administration, school teaching to the State Department here in Arizona. And that's where I learned about a lot of stuff about finance and law and, and gov- you know, government. And then, you know, this thing that whatever I do right now that we call <laughs> Maverick Education, you know, this author, I mean, I would have never foresaw it. You know, it's a whole different line of work. It's hard. I mean, I'm talking to you today and I'm going to be, you know, traveling uh, up until the second week of November. I mean, I'm home for six days this month. I mean, I, the joke, yeah. my, my friend said is like, you know, you always want to be a pro wrestler. Well, now you are because you're on the road for like, you know, so many days. And, and you don't see, you see like, you know, the selfies with these big groups you're presenting to, or like, Hey, look at me, I'm on an airplane doing this. And, you know, I'm traveling here, I'm traveling there. And you don't see the behind the scenes. It's a lot of work, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's no days off. You know, there, and some people know how to do it with days off, but I mean, there's really no days off. And, you know, for every success you see, for every conference acceptance you see, there's like nine rejections. You know, someone can reject you because that's not the topic we're focusing on, or someone right. can reject you because, you know, you're, you're an author, you're not a classroom practitioner, you're trying to sell something. And, and it's, it's tough. It, it's tough. And, it, you know, you really got to have that mindset. I think that's, Probably what got me through the pandemic is that I knew how to motivate myself and, and manage myself that, you know, you wake up every day and you either A, have a job, looking for a job, or convincing someone that you they need to hire you for this job or creating a job. And, you know, every day I wake up, I say, is this the day I'm going to start driving for Uber or Lyft? And, you know, thankfully I don't. So you know, I'm not, <laughs> I would. But, you know, it's not an easy gig. What you're describing reminds me, I I do a lot of connecting with a lot of fiction writers in Los Angeles here. And I subscribe Mm -hmm. to a lot of newsletters where they talk about their process and publication um, woes and successes and all of that. So a lot of what you're describing about the traveling part even reminds me of how people talk about going on book tours. And how, uh, you know, a lot of it you can compare to some parts of like a band going on tour. It won't be that mm-hmm. extensive. But if you even think of going on like a six, a six city 
tour of a, a book that you've just released as a fiction author, you know, they're like, it, yes, there's like that, there's the gruelingness of just having to do the physical part of it, but showing up and not knowing, you know, <laughs> not knowing if people are, uh, how many people are going to come and listen to you read or how many people are, it's a little bit different, but because like when you're showing up, there's usually people probably registered, maybe, maybe buying a ticket to something, um, depending on the event. But that idea of it being like, it's not, it's not anything that we all look forward to this, like going and showing people what we're doing, but it's necessary for in order for us to live, to live the way or to get the message out that we're trying to get out. Um, but it's unpredictable. You've got to find what your niche is. You've got to find what your thing is. And, you know, you could be, um, you know, a jack of all trades or Jill of all trades or master of all things, but you really got to find your niche and you really got to find out, you know, what it is. And it's not just even like a specific thing. Like I can say about the way I look at things and my, and my thought process is, is that here's this concept. Like I don't say I'm an inventor. I say I'm an innovator. I'm like someone who takes something and, and does something more with it. Like, for example, my first book is called Now That's a Good Question. And the concept's about what I call good questions. The reason why I came up with good questions is because we all talked about this thing called essential questions, and no one really knew what that meant. I mean, there was no clear definition. Okay, let's just call them mm -hmm. good questions. So same with depth of knowledge, DOK. It's like everything we've been told about DOK for the last 10 years has been inaccurate and inconsistent. Um, when we all went common core and, and we talk about college career readiness and, and rigor, we said that rigor is about the level of thinking kids must demonstrate according to Bloom's and the depth of knowledge demand according to this thing called Webb's DOK levels. Well, no one knew what that was. It's because DOK is not about the verb. It's about what comes after the verb. So it's not like that you're analyzing, evaluating, creating. You have to ask yourself, like, well, what exactly am I analyzing, evaluating, creating, or how deeply am I doing this? That comes after the verb, all those words and phrases and objective. So what I did with it was I turned into a method and model for teaching and learning that says teaching and testing starts and stops with the DOK level of the standard. And there's four DOK levels. So you're either attaining the answer, explaining the answer, justifying the answer, verifying the answer or exploring, extending the answer. So that's the four things you're doing DOK, and that's what the standard demands. Now, teaching and testing starts and, sto starts and stops there, but teaching and learning tiers to where the kids are, the DOK level where the kids are, so they can rise to reach and go beyond that DOK level. So that's basically a way that I'm teaching schools even how to address learning loss. So it's like, here's the standard. Can you do it? No. Can you do it at this level? No. Can you do it at this level? No. Can you do it at this level? Yeah. Okay, good. Let's start there. And then you build upon their strengths so they can rise to and through and go beyond that standard. You say very clearly, or you make statements like um, about your system is not a taxonomy. Could you right. like explain that a little bit? Because I found that to be interesting that that's like a, a thing that you want to make sure people understand. Well, the thing about education taxonomies is that, you know, they're classification systems. That's what a taxonomy is. But the way we mm -hmm. use it in education is that the thing is, we think we got to start low to go deep or start low to go high. And we don't. We start at the level demanded. So when we talk about DOK, it des describes four different ways students can understand and use their learning. And 
the way that the kids have to understand user learning, that depends upon two things, the demand of the standard and the strengths of the student. That's the delivery intensity of your instruction. So let's say the standard is a DOK3 because the kids have to either think strategically or use complex reasoning to examine and explain. That's the end goal. That's the finish line. Now, where are you in your learning? I'm going to start with that standard and that expectation as my finish line. I now need to find out where you are on the track or the pathway to proficiency to progression and performance. What's that obstacle that you can cross and how can I get you through those other obstacles to go to the standard? So you're not having to start a DOK one to get to a DOK four. Like I could start you mm-hmm. with a DOK four and then scale it back. Like an example I go is like this is that there's a, there's a standard, a science standard that says analyze, interpret data on natural hazards to forecast future catastrophic events and inform the development of technologies to mitigate their effects. That's an actual standard. So that's mm-hmm. the four because I have to explore and explain with examples and evidence. Okay. Can you do that right now? No. Okay, well, what's a natural hazard? Are you asking me? I'm asking you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, see, okay, so now I got to find out where you are. So what is a natural okay. hazard? So <laughs> so you would, you would tell me a natural hazard is something destructive caused by nature. That's a DOK one. Okay. I answered that. <laughs> got it. Okay. What is an example of a natural hazard? You may say to me, what, what do you I, have? I was going to say an earthquake. Right. Okay, earthquake. So yeah. if I, if, let's say you said tornado or hurricane. I'd say, why is that a natural hazard? You have to explain that example. That's a DOK too. Now you said earthquake. I'm going to say, is that natural, man-made, or both? And you think about it, you go, well, wait a minute, there's fracking. That's man-made. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, un- underground explosions. That's man-made. Okay, so that's a DOK3 because now you got to justify with evidence. Now you got to verify with evidence. Mm-hmm. So then I say to you, do you want to do earthquake for your project to address that standard? And you would say, sure. Okay, good. Pasta lasagna, don't get any on you. That's why I call the education <laughs> blessing. Pasta lasagna, don't get any on you. Oh, my God. <laughs> so. I didn't create mm-hmm. that. That's actually from the first Mission Impossible. Amelia Westervez says that. To I was going to say, I feel like go, I know that. Right. You go red light, green light with the gum, pasta lasagna. See, that's why I make these lines that people think, oh, wow, he's so profound and creative with his lines. No, I just mm-hmm. reference obscure movies that people forget. And then I just look <laughs> People like, haven't seen in a while. <laughs> the bottom line is that it doesn't scaffold. You don't have to start at a DOK1 to get okay. to a DOK4. You start with the standard, you tier to where the students are and build upon their strengths so they can rise to reach and go beyond what I call the DOK bar. So I'm wondering if, I mean, you could be working on this with your newer book or with other things that you're working on separately. I'm not sure, but I'm wondering if you are thinking deeply at all about how how any of this is going to need, or if you think it does need to shift with, with the availability of AI in the classroom, is this, this, are you thinking that systems like this are in place to work alongside or with our incorporation of, of AI or, or will we need to change those to think about how human thinking is going to have to evolve? I think expectations for human thinking have to evolve. Okay. Answers come free. Okay. We live in a time where, you know, 
we could just Google it. You know, I was just with my nephew and my nephew knows the state song and he can sing all the states in alphabetical order. That's fantastic. But everyone else is just, you know, going to Google it if I asked you that. Um, we need to think, you know, this is going to challenge us to think deeper. It's going to challenge us to think mm-hmm. critically. I mean, look, ChatGPT can write a script where Batman meets Iron Man and it's a very creative script. But mm-hmm. that critical thinking is, okay, these are two separate companies, comic book movie production. How do we make this happen where, you know, this seems like a plausible meeting, you know, or, you know, argumentation, um, you know, agreeing to disagreeing, defending our positions. Chat GPT cannot think critically. It cannot defend or justify. In fact, if you ask Chat GPT, and I've done this, to take a position in an argument, it'll present you all the sides in the argument, but it will not take mm-hmm. its position and defend it with evidence. It also can't think extensively in that it it doesn't it can't make those extensive um connections those creative connections the real true creativity of thought you know where you know doing a thing like where you can say how is the book jaws an analogy for freudian psychology chatgpt can't do that unless somebody wrote a paper about it and put it on the internet because that's what chatgpt gets all its information it's getting it. And it'll tell you, say, I apologize. My source of information goes back to 2021. Well, if you go to it and something new happened in 2022 or in the future, that GPT has to update its, its resources and how it gets through it. So, and it's not accurate. I mean, look, I put my name in who is Eric Francis or who's the author, Eric Francis. And they, talked about my first book, but they also credited me for some books that other people wrote that are great books. I'm like, okay, wow, ChatGPT thinks <laughs> I wrote uh, Essential Questions, Opening Doorways to in- Student Understanding. No, that's Jay McTighe and Grant Wiggins, but hey, ChatGPT credited me. Okay, I guess that's now reality. So, you know, so you need to have that critical and creative thinking. You need to have that the way to make connections. We're not going to lose that. And, and we can't just be dependent upon it because that, that's what kind of separates us from the animals is that we do have critical and creative thought and we know how to rationalize. We know how to defend and justify. We know how to explore and extend and think extensively. And I don't think the technology will ever get there. And some people will say to me, Oh, it's just not there yet. Well, you better hope it never gets there because the minute it can do that, that's when it's going to start making rationalizations. Well, the thing about this whole, even even conversations, like we're barely, obviously scratching the surface of any of this. We're just, we're just, uh, it's just a blip in the middle of our larger conversation. But, you know, the thing about all of this is that we, me and you, and we could even get the, you know, the top AI experts in this room at the same time talking to us and none of them, none of us know, like literally none of us know. And so it's hard to spend so much energy speculating because what we do have to, I think what we need to spend more time and energy wrapping our heads around is the fact that us as human beings are going to have to evolve and adapt with the technology now. Like I think you and I were talking a little earlier about, you know, past forms of tech that seemed a little crazy and wild and, you know, and and they were easy to kind of ignore and still can be in some ways. but. 
um, when it comes to AI, we're not really going to be able to push it aside. It's, it is a part of our lives. Even if you think that you are ignoring it right now, it's having an effect on you. <laughs> no. Well, that's the thing is that it's a tool. It's an instrument. Okay. And it's actually something that I talk about when teaching and learning for depth of knowledge. Like I have this triangle where I say the top of the triangle is your standard. And in the middle of the triangle is your students. And the lines that go to the triangle are your curricular programs and your instructional um, talent. So I say your curricular tools, your instructional talent. So here's the comparison I make is that let's say the standard is the song. It's a song you need to teach and all the kids have to play. Your curricular program or chat GPT is the instrument you use to play that song. Now, let's say that song is a Van Halen song. Okay, one of the most complex Van Halen songs where you have to mimic Eddie Van Halen's, uh, replicate Eddie Van Halen's leads perfectly. Well, I can give you an Eddie Van Halen designed guitar from Fender, but that doesn't mean you'll play it like Eddie Van Halen. Or I can get, give you these guitars out there where I can program the mm-hmm. guitar to make the brown sound that Eddie Van Halen's guitar made. That doesn't mean I can play the Van Halen song. You still need to have that humanistic element to it. You still need to have that human dynamic is that the machines can't do every, anything. They can do a lot, everything. They can do a lot, but they can't do everything. You're always going to need that human dynamic. And I think that's a little bit... And people don't want to talk about this, but I think if there was one critique we can have about the pandemic and how we use technology during the pandemic in education, and we don't want to do this because we don't want to criticize teachers, and I'm not criticizing teachers. I mean, these, you know, th- this profession, we had to pivot over a weekend. But if we use the technology because yeah. we sat there and we tried to move the brick-and-mortar classroom to an online platform – that's like listening to Bill Nye, the science guy, just talk about science for 30, 45 minutes. There's a reason why Bill Nye, at, you know, you can be a scientist after watching 30 minutes of Bill Nye, the science guy. And there's a reason why you know your letters and numbers after five minutes of watching a Muppet sing about it on, on Sesame Street. If we let the kids use the technology, if I asked you a question mm-hmm. and you had to go out and Google it and you bring it back and you ask, well, what's the source? And they tell you what the source is. Well, how do I know it's a credible source? Okay, I got to think critically about that. Okay, what does it say? You read it verbatim. That's DOK1. Okay, in your own words, what does that mean? That's a DOK2. Okay, can you put that link in the chat so everyone has access to that source? Yeah, that's real machine learning. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that. And it was almost like there was a fear factor and it's understandable, but- if we just let it go a little bit and let the kids because you know use the technology because these are tools for instruction they're not weapons of mass distraction how can we use it productively yeah you know like i say a dok2 is if you have if you produced your own youtube video or tiktok on that but i think also we need to teach kids how to use the technology responsibly and if they're going to cheat using chat gpt well gosh you know they were cheating way before chat gpt or use it as a tool and reference. Like, do you ever have those times where you taught and you're like, man, I'm not getting through to the kids? You can go at ChatGPT and say, how can I explain this concept to a fifth grader? Mm-hmm. And it will. I asked ChatGPT to explain quantum physics to kindergartners, and it did. And then I read it to the kindergartners. The kids got a basic understanding of what quantum physics is. It's the study of tiny, tiny things. That's interesting. That's funny. 
There's times where if I have writer's block, I'll go on chat GPT and say, well, what is this? And then look at it, but I don't copy and paste it verbatim. I say, okay, it's a great way to get my thinking, you know, going. It's a great way to get my, you know, my ideas, you know, like I'm not communicating this clearly. Why am I not communicating this clearly? And then I'll go like, look on Google. I'll look on chat GPT. If I see something that I have to cite, I'll cite it and then, you know, summarize it in my own words. But we can't fight this technology. And that's the thing. And and the more you push against it, the more frustrated you're going to be as a teacher. Yeah. And I think the the place that we're landing right now in the um, optimalist community and on our team at Swivel is that we really, really want to work together to figure out how to make sure that we're not just using the technology to help us in in some of the terms that we're describing here, like helping us actually create or write or do our work better or do our work more efficient efficiently or figure out different ways to get work um to do to do things or whatever it might be but we want to use it to actually help us become better thinkers um mm-hmm. and make us like almost achieve the next level of human um because in reality like we did say before that we don't know when or how it, you know AI will reach its its next levels of efficiency and and potentially overtake a lot of what we I mean it already can do a lot of what we consider higher level thinking. And so where do we you know how do we use it to get ourselves at an even higher level? And so that's that's kind of what we're thinking now like we need to start focusing on what how important it is to reflect and be aware of our depth of knowledge or our level of thinking so that we can just be that much better as we grow. You said it perfectly. So like when I talked to you about standards earlier and I talked to you about how we all point back to the 1980s, but actually there was something before that. I got that from ChatGPT because most of the research I found referenced a nation at risk in the 1980s. And I'm like, man, what's the international scope? What's the historical scope? I know decisions start with the 80s. And then I started seeing things about the turn of the 20th century on ChatGPT. And I said, well, what's this? And then it led me to Google and led me to find some really interesting research and really interesting information. But see how you can't just stop. And I think that's the hard part. And it's not just kids. It's adults. You know, like adults read something and they don't look at the fine prints, how we got the DOK wheel in the first place. If anyone just looked at the fine print of the DOK poster, you'd see it was to a link that was a dead link. You know, you really need to, to, it should it should activate you want to want to learn more. It should it should advance you to want to learn more. And I think that's the thing is that you know it's not so much even Chat GPT. We're a passive society from technology. Mm-hmm. Think about the language that little kids can develop if they listen closely to Pixar cartoons. You know, the language in Pixar cartoons is so highfalutin and there's so many what they call tier two or general academic or tier three subject specific words that if you think about how that would increase a student's lexicon if they just paid attention or if they just thought critically and the kids can. I mean, you ever get a discussion with a kid about Avengers Endgame where the kids are talking about going, wait a minute, Captain America moved that hammer in Age of Ultron. Was it that... He couldn't lift the hammer or he couldn't lift the hammer right then, or maybe he could lift the hammer, but he didn't want Thor to be upset about it. So he did it. That's all critical thinking. 
you know, and, and, and yeah. that's the thing. And that's kids at any age, you know, and, 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 and the reason why I think a lot of times we don't allow kids to go to the next step or further is be, not because of children ability, but I think adult mindsets. I mean, how many times as a teacher do you hear, well, these kids can, or these kids are too young or these kids, no, kids can do anything. Okay. Kids can do anything. We just got to let them recognize and realize what they can do. I have to wind us down to my closing questions, which I'm, I'm, I didn't ask you about before. So I'm hoping you might know what they are. So these questions are uh, easy. So they're not really anything crazy, but I do like to ask people a little bit about what they, if anything, what you're possibly reading, listening to, or watching in your own world right now that give us a little bit more insight into the kinds of media you consume. And it doesn't have to be anything professional. Sometimes it's a mixture of professional and um, things you're doing for leisure, but it gives us a nice sense of of who you are as a full person. But is there anything you're watching, listening to, or reading that you would like to recommend or share? Yeah. So it's funny because you say that because um, I've really got into Audible. I think just even because, you know, like I said, getting older, it's harder to read, you know, with your eyesight and everything. So I'm really getting to Audible. Um, I, I'm listening right now to, again, to, uh, Simon Sinek's, um, start with why and find your why, because I, I want to turn that into something for teaching. Okay. I really love that whole thing about the golden circle about what's your why that helped me a lot during the pandemic. And I read it back then and now I'm listening to it again. Um, I just downloaded, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's, uh, new book about success and, you know, whatever you feel about him, you feel about him. But, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and I always, you know, really looked up to Arnold and, 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 you know, had that. But man, I would say a lot of it is more so just, um, I, I jump between self help books or like books about experiences and then books about, like I just downloaded a book about I want my MTV. It's going to be talking about the um, the history of MTV. And and before that, I was listening to the book uh, a book called um, You Could Ignore Me If You Tried, which was about the Brat Pack of the 1980s. So kind of like in a glimpse into me, I'm always like either looking at either creative oh, cool. or or motivational or biographies or autobiographies of celebrities or 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 time periods of industries. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what I'm basically reading. Watching, you know, here's the thing. I grew up and, and I'm still a kid at heart and I I just like to check my brain and I write these academic books, but man, I can watch pro wrestling and I just watched this TV show and I just canceled it. It was called Heels and it was about this small town and this Southern family whose father had a wrestling company, a small territory. And he, you know, he, he ended up uh, committing suicide and he left to his sons. It's very dramatic. And, you know, just about, you know, how they deal with family drama and social stuff and, and, and also the wrestling aspect of it. It was a great show. And then they ended up canceling it. So there's not really a lot right now. And I'm kind of disappointed with that. And I think a lot of that also is kind of killed by social media because, you know, you got people who are TikToking and Instagramming and Facebooking and they're presenting information in three to five minutes and you kind of lose that long form, you know, that long form of, uh, of learning on that. So I think that's kind of the hard part. So, so hopefully I'll give you a little bit of insights about who I am. <laughs> 
I was just talking about that with somebody the other day, and now I can't remember if it was also on a podcast interview or if it was just a conversation. But I was saying like sometimes one of those ways that it's a subtle other way that social media kind of dupes us into thinking that we're spending our time in a worthwhile manner is is if you even just take Twitter where I do a, I spend a lot of time on Twitter um for for work reasons as well and community building but in between those moments of talking to people and actually typing and interacting I do spend a lot of time reading but it is in those little snippets so I'm reading like even if I'm following a hundred, you know, five hundred really awesome writers, I'm reading snippets and snippets and snippets and snippets of right. wisdom. Like they might be great, but I'm never, I'm not, I'm not going ever turning the page and going to chapter two. I'm just reading, starting from the beginning every thirty seconds, and um, that does something mm-hmm. wild to your brain. Even if, even if what you're reading right. is good. Even if what you're reading is of substance, it's only 10 sentences and you're not getting any further. And that's been doing a lot to me lately. I'm like, wow, I just spent 45 minutes reading like 25 unrelated paragraphs. <laughs> and you know what? I'm going to tell you something. And this is kind of an interesting thing. I had a conversation with someone who was a publisher for one of the big companies. And they think that in the next couple of years, education books, they're not sure if they're going to be around. They're expensive, you know, the way, and a lot of people are doing this, but I, I have a hard, a hard time. I don't know, maybe it's because I'm old school or something like that, or I hear my dad in my head about this thing. But, you know, I see a lot of people putting their lives out on social media that do kind of like what I do. And a bunch of us have talked about this. And I've even talked about this with people do promotional marketing. They're like, Eric, you got to show who you are. People want to know who you are. And it's kind of like, no, that's that's my private life. You know what I mean? That's kind of like, I know that's kind of the world we live in. I think if we use social media as a platform to focus on the messages we want to share with educators and students and the methods, I think we need to get to that. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's about the message and method that is being presented out there. Thank you, Eric, for sharing your story and work with the Optimalist audience and community. And thanks to everyone out there for listening and tuning in week after week as we really work hard to figure out how the Optimalist is going to help transform the way we educate, especially in the age of AI. Speaking of AI, I have to give one more thank you again to everyone out there who has been signing up to try Swivel's new product, Mirror during its first demo program cycle, as we're calling it. Mirror, in case you're listening for the first time or you don't usually listen to the end, Mirror is Swivel's new AI-powered self-reflection tool that helps students supercharge and regulate their reflective practice. We believe that the high-order skills that we all are going to need in the age of AI are going to rely on our level of self-awareness and our ability to better manage our emotions, work habits, choices, relationships, and our learning. And we're using AI to help us do that. Basically, Mirror is where we want you to meet your potential self. Think about that, your best self. So there's a link in the show notes today to sign up to be a part of this incredible opportunity, which is the Mirror Demo Program. Basically, we send you a free mirror to your school and you use it with some light guidance from us over the course of 30 days, and then you tell us what happened. 
tell us how you used it and tell us what you think. It's that easy. So follow the link in the show notes to sign up now, right now, or go to swivel.com for more information. Please consider letting us know what you think about the podcast also by leaving a review or even a rating in Apple Podcasts. And you can reach me on Twitter at scandela9. The hashtag optimalist can be used whenever you're posting answers to questions that we ask here, especially if they're reflective questions, and especially if you can't find the original post anywhere on social media. And I'll be sure to see it if you use that hashtag. I can also be reached personally at Sarah, that's S-A-R-A, no H, at Swivel, S-W-I-V-L dot com. You can listen and subscribe to the Optimalist podcast wherever you love listening to great podcasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday and links to all of these resources are available in the show notes. The Optimalist podcast is brought to you by Swivel. At Swivel, We understand that the biggest challenge in education is the rate of change, policy revisions, technological advancements accelerated by AI, evolving job markets and ongoing research, constantly identifying new best practices are only some of the factors affecting the rate of change in education. To learn how Swivel can help you be more reflective, engaged, and adaptable, visit swivel.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to The Optimalist, and I'll be back next week with a new conversation.